The epistle is from 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 16th chapter. Jesus said, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby... She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Christ is risen, he is risen indeed, alleluia. I've noticed lately that for our curbside communion service, directing traffic has become much easier for me. At first it felt like I was trying to run a play on the basketball court and a clipboard with a marker would have been really helpful, but now everyone seems to have it pretty well figured out and there's something strange about that. It's still all very abnormal but you can see how it could begin to become a new normal. How long would it take? How long would we have to spend listening to services at home and having communion from our cars in front of the church before we forgot what it was like to worship together in the sanctuary? 
Certainly longer than six weeks, but how long? Six months? A year? Six years? At some point, we'd get quite used to it. It would become the new normal, and it would no longer feel strange or out of place. We become habituated to things. People are adaptable. We get used to things. We settle in and get comfortable. Now, hopefully, you react against that a bit. It's a sad thought, isn't it? We don't want to forget what it's like to gather as a congregation and worship together and receive the sacrament all together. We don't want curbside communion to feel normal. We don't want listening to church in our jammies with a cup of coffee to feel like that's the way things should be. It's not. The liturgy of the divine service breaks with our everyday experiences. It's something different, completely different from watching the morning news or going to the drive through at McDonald's. It is communion with God according to his word and promises. It's coming into his presence with thanksgiving and receiving from him forgiveness, life, and salvation. It is otherworldly and not thisworldly. And that's why the prospect of a new normal should make us chafe. Now, I don't think that this present situation will go on so long that we'll forget what it was like to be together in church. But I want you to imagine it, because it's helpful in understanding something that Peter talked about in our epistle lesson. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That first word, sojourner, needs a bit of explanation. A sojourner is someone who is somewhere temporarily. If you're staying away from home for a bit, you're a sojourner. You're a sojourner when you're on vacation, when you travel for business, when you have to leave the house for a renovation or a fumigation. You're a sojourner when you're not at home. Abraham was a sojourner while he was in Egypt. There was a famine in the land, and so Abraham and Sarah went to Egypt for a bit to wait out the famine. Mary and Joseph were sojourners in Egypt as well when they fled from King Herod, who wanted to kill the baby Jesus. They were away from home. Abraham and Sarah were away from the land that God had promised to them. They were there temporarily. But as much as Abraham was a sojourner while he was away from the promised land and living in Egypt. Much more was he a sojourner in a different way. In fact, even while he lived in the promised land, he lived there as a foreigner because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Through the promises of God, Abraham had his eye and his heart set on a better country, better even than the promised land of Canaan, which flowed with milk and honey. He had his eye and his heart set on a heavenly country, prepared for him by God. And so, whether he wandered in Egypt or he settled in Israel, Abraham was a sojourner his whole life long. He was here, in this world, in this life, temporarily. And his home was elsewhere. 
I urge you as sojourners and exiles, Peter says. That's you and I as well, sojourners. By baptism into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we received adoption as sons of God. By incorporation into the death and resurrection of Jesus, which atoned for all our sins, we have been made into new creations. By his wounds, we have been healed. We were strained like sheep. But now we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And our home is with him. It is not here in this world. We are here temporarily. But our home is elsewhere. That's captured in the word exile as well. A sojourner may leave his home voluntarily, but an exile has been driven from his home. That was the people of Israel in the Babylonian captivity. God warned them time and again to repent of their idolatry and their wickedness. He sent them prophets to urge them to turn from their ways, but they would not. And so he sent a foreign army, the Babylonian Empire, to conquer them and carry them off into exile. For many, it was no matter, and they gladly became Babylonians, living not as exiles, but as citizens of that empire. But for some, for a faithful remnant, those who trusted God, as much as they were to settle there and spend their time there many long years, it would never be home. It couldn't be home, because Jerusalem was their home, where God had promised to dwell with them in the temple. There's a mournful psalm, Psalm 137, that goes like this. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered Jerusalem. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. The faithful exiles in Babylon could not bring themselves to perform the joyful songs of worship in that foreign land. They were afraid that if they did, they might forget that Jerusalem was their home, that those songs belonged in the promised land of God, that the temple was the promised dwelling place of God, that they were foreigners in a strange land, that they were waiting for God to redeem them and return them to their home. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, says Peter. That's you and I. We are in this life, but temporarily, far from home and exiled. As much as we would hate to forget what it's like to worship together in our sanctuary, how much worse if we were to forget that we are strangers in a strange land altogether. Jesus tells us about how strange this land of our exile is. Did you notice what he said in our gospel lesson? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. 
Think of that. The disciples were grieved because Jesus died, but the world rejoiced. Christians are sad to see Jesus depart, but the world couldn't be happier to have him gone. They're glad to have him out of their hair, glad not to hear him preach the kingdom, call them to repentance, and offer them forgiveness. The world is glad when the word of God goes silent, when they can do whatever pleases them and make their own way. Christians are grieved when Jesus departs, but the world rejoices. If that does not reveal how out of place we are in this world, what else possibly could? What more proof do you need? And so Peter urges us to live as sojourners and exiles. Do not forget that God is preparing for you a heavenly city. Keep your eyes and your hearts fixed on your homeland, that heavenly country where we will live and abide in God's love forever. Do not forget, and as sojourners and exiles, Peter says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. It is not just the world that is glad to be rid of Jesus, but it is your own flesh with its passions and desires that would have you make your home here in this life. For what your flesh desires is contrary to the Spirit, is contrary to God's law, it's contrary to love. And it is on account of the desires of your flesh that this world is perishing, that the world is under judgment, that you must die. And so to live here as sojourners and exiles means that you must pay attention, not just hoping for a better future, but resisting your inclination to settle down, get cozy, and make this life your home. What does that look like? Peter gives some very specific examples. Live honorably, he says, so that no one can call you an evildoer, and so bring reproach on God's name. Live as a reflection of God's character. Live in the image of Christ, so that when they see you, they do not see an evildoer, but they see Christ. Do good by living peaceably and in obedience to authority. Notice what Peter said. Live as people who are free. That is, freely subjecting yourself to human authorities, to the government, to your parents, to the head of your house, because they're all from God. Not because you're compelled or enslaved by them, but because it is the will of God for you in your freedom. Do good, Peter says, to the point of suffering injustice. Follow the example of Christ, which we heard last week, who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Now, Peter's examples of abstaining from the passions of the flesh are particular for his audience. Folks who were scattered throughout Asia Minor, who suffered injustice and persecution because they were Christians. Suffer patiently, he says, for that is to follow the example of Christ. And the same goes for us. But the task of abstaining from the passions of the flesh is not limited to obeying authority or living peaceably or living honorably so that we leave a good witness for our neighbors. It is conforming our whole lives to God's law, to his will, in love for him and toward our neighbor. The works of the flesh are evident, says St. Paul. 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The works of the flesh are evident. Abstain from the passions of the flesh and instead cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. To live that way, to live according to the law of love, seeking what pleases God, to do that is to strain against your flesh, to strain against your inclinations, which would have you treat your life as home. Treat this life, this life of flesh, as home. To do all of that, to despise what is evil, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, and to cling to what is good, to practice what is righteous and holy, is to run against the grain of this world and everything that it stands for, because we are sojourners and exiles here. We are not Babylonians. We are the true Israel of God. And we eagerly await that day when he delivers us from this foreign land into his heavenly Zion, a new Jerusalem, where we will no longer have to strain against the passions of our flesh because we will have put on Christ eternally. We will have been clothed in immortality and incorruptibility, and we will be perfect, even as he is perfect. We are right now in that time of sorrow that Jesus describes as the time of birth pain. Indeed, St. Paul says that all creation is groaning as if it were in labor, waiting for redemption, which is drawing near. It is a time of waiting and watching, which is good, as Jeremiah says. It is good because our waiting will not be disappointed. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Not the world, not its pleasures, not the desires of my flesh. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear his yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. Let him suffer as Christ suffered, for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Much rather, God disciplines us as his beloved children as those who wait for him. On the far side of this waiting is not just the end of grief. It's not just the end of sadness and alienation, not just the removal of pain, but it is joy beyond measure. Even as the pain of labor does not just disappear into nothingness, into normalcy, but it gives way to the joy that a child has been born, so will the struggle and strain and sorrow of this time of sojourning and exile give way to joy in abundance, a joy that no one can take from us, the joy of home, of a city built by God and a heavenly country. So I say to you, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Live godly lives here in time, asking in the name of Jesus for strength 
and endurance and fullness of joy, and he will surely grant it. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia.